I also say it is great to see the Napiers and to hear all that God is doing around the world and what a privilege it is to, uh, to be a part of a ministry and to support you guys and to support TWR and what God is doing around the world, that we can be senders and so participate uh, in what God is doing. Um, this morning as we press on into First uh, Peter, we are moving out of the greeting and into the first part of the, uh, the body of his text in chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, talking about God's uh, eternal inheritance and what we have in Christ and that, that it is not something only that we, that we experience in time as we experience his blessing in our lives and there's so much that comes into our lives as Christians, as believers, as God blesses us and puts us in the way of life, in the way of peace. But there is an eternal hope and a way that God has promised us that changes even the way we experience this life and the hope of what's to come. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Hear the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for the way that you love us. We thank you that you are a God who speaks and is not silent. We thank you for your word that lives and is true. And we are not to live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so would you feed us this morning. Would you strengthen our faith and Fill us with your spirit and shape us for an eternity with you. Father, we thank you that you hear our prayers and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. In the movie Princess Bride, there is a scene, one of my favorites, there's a scene with uh, Princess Buttercup and the dread pirate Roberts standing on a hill. It's just before they tumble down it after each other as you and standing at the top, though, she, he, he says something to her, and he, she responds and says, You mock my pain. And the dread pirate responds, Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Life is pain. Anyone who says differently is selling something. And yes, life is full of joy, and there is a great deal of pleasure that God has made us capable of and has blessed us with, but... In the midst of all of those good gifts, there is a brokenness. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And so there's sin and there's brokenness and sickness and war and suffering and ultimately death. And so in John 16, 33, it's there in your bulletin, Jesus says a similar thing. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. And anyone who says differently is selling something. Right? Our Savior has made clear that this, is, that this is true. And he says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so he takes that, the reality of pain, the reality of tribulation, of the, the suffering of various kinds, he takes it and he puts it in a context for us. And he says, I have overcome the world in which we suffer. 2 Corinthians 4.17, also there in your bulletin under the first point, Paul writes and he says, 
this momentary affliction, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. And and the words that he piles up there that is greater than, it's more than anything that can be compared to here. And he stacks them up. And so, light and momentary affliction. He's talking about all human suffering of every kind. All the things that we suffer here. The things that, that exist within this congregation. And I know enough to know where marriages are struggling. Where there's chronic illness. Where there are people who are uh, struggling and depressed in various ways. From finances and a constant struggle and a stress in their home and their life that way. To struggles with children and, and family. To the list goes on. Jobs that we're not happy with. Bosses that we can't hardly stand. You know, and the issues, and the, you just make your list out. Family, that can be such a struggle at times. Whatever you're going through, he says these light and momentary afflictions, whether it's our chronic illnesses and, and those, he calls them light and momentary. Not to make light of them, but he says, he wants to put them in perspective. If life is this long and eternity is broader than, than the heavens, And he says, life is short, eternity is long. And what God has prepared, you can't even begin to understand. And so there's this promise of an eternal glory that outweighs everything that you're going through, everything that you're struggling with. And he says, as you do, keep it in this perspective. Right? Peter is writing to young churches. He's writing to all those churches that we read about. Some of the letters that are in here that we read about in Paul's journeys and the letters of Revelation churches in Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and Caesarea and Ephesus and Colossae and Thyatira and Pergamum, Philadelphia. He's writing to all these young churches throughout Asia Minor, figuring out what it is to follow Christ. And they're experiencing the tribulation that Jesus said would come. In this life you will have tribulation. And they're like, yeah. And most of us, if you've lived long enough, say, Yeah. In this life, we do have tribulation. And so they are struggling to follow Jesus. They're struggling with suffering and temptation. They're struggling with a persecution that we don't even know about or experience in this country. They're struggling with their marriages. And some of the things that Peter will address in this letter, it's clear that there are are marriages that are struggling. There are people who are struggling with sin and struggling to be faithful to Christ in a world where there are powers around us, governments and powers around us that are not godly. In other words, these folks that Peter is writing to are an awful lot like us. Like you and I. And what Peter wants to do here in this text and even in the next text that we'll look at next week is to to take these things and to put them into context for those who know and love Christ and who have a hope and a promise that is larger than life, an eternal weight of glory that outweighs them all. And he says we have to live with these things having their, their weight, that that weight of glory would have an effect now on the way that we do life and experience these things. So he wants us to hear his letter and the things that we're going to talk about in the coming weeks and months in the context of God's eternal purposes in a life that is promised to us in eternity. And so he recounts the wonders of Trinitarian grace 
This is what we looked at last time, and I didn't really highlight the fact. I hope you picked it up, but that, that verses 1 and 2, particularly verse 2, are some of, is one of the most beautiful and powerful and clear Trinitarian statements in Scripture. And there are others, you know, Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, he says to be baptized in the one name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, but here again, he brings together this beautiful Trinitarian statement where we see the sovereign God in eternity past before the world is made, planning and purposing our salvation. We see the Holy Spirit poured out for us, sanctifying us, giving us, taking us the heart of stone and giving us a new heart, setting us apart as God's people, claiming us for Christ. We see the Son shedding His blood, the blood of a new covenant to wash us of our sins and to make us right with God. God saves, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is a work of the divine trinity as creation, so in the recreation. And he says none of it, he doesn't say it here, but he leaves it out. None of it is by works. Paul will say that very clearly again and again. None of it is by works so that no one can boast. We see this work of God so that all the glory, all the praise, all the honor belongs to Him and to Him alone. Father, Son, and Spirit have been revealed for us and for our salvation to the glory of His name. And we said this is just the greeting as we spent time unpacking who God is and what He has done. And it's no wonder though that He says at the end of that greeting, may peace, grace, and peace be multiplied to you. When it says be multiplied as a, it's a translation, it's really more like may, you, may grace and peace, may the fullness of grace and peace be, ex- be yours. You know, be experienced by you, be full. May you be full of it. You experience to its great fullness. And so he bursts then into this doxology. Doxology is praise, it's worship. And so Peter does like Paul does elsewhere. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection. He begins to describe that grace and the peace and the full measure thereof that he wants us to, to know and to experience. He begins to to sing about it, in a sense. This is almost a hymn of praise. And so he leads us to bless and to adore God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as the source of all spiritual blessing. There in your bulletin under the second point, you'll see in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul uses the same phrase and says a very similar thing. In fact, when you read the first chapter of Peter and you read the first two chapters of Ephesians, you will be able to draw incredible parallels. I think Peter was reading Paul and uh, having some of the same revelation of who God is and what He is doing. But in Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul bursts out after his greeting, verses 1 and 2, and in verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world. And he goes on in this pantheon of praise, So both Peter and Paul, interestingly, both Peter and Paul call him the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we were just celebrating in some ways the promises that were given to Abraham, which is the very seed of of the promises that we now experience in the more fullness in Christ. But in the New Testament, you rarely see him called the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. 
which was his covenant name in a sense in the Old Testament as, as his people, as God's people claimed the covenant promises that came to the patriarchs, right? They came to Abraham. He is the God, the covenant God of Abraham who made those promises and of, and of Isaac and of Jacob who is the father of his people. And so they claimed this covenant name of God. In the New Testament, it is changed. And you hear more often, you see, I just saw Paul use it and you hear Peter using it. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, a greater than Abraham has come. A greater covenant of Abraham has come. And greater promises in their fullness exist in the Son. And so he is, this is a covenant name. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our covenant God, who from eternity foreknew and poured out his Spirit to sanctify and, and, and change our hearts and to bring us to obedience to Christ and a sprinkling in his blood and he has blessed us into a living hope according to his mercy. And the motive behind it is just that. According to his great mercy. Everything that he has done, as he explains all these things, you don't have to look further. You're looking for a reason. Why would he do this? Why, why, why all of this, this? You don't have to look any further. In the very nature of God himself as a God of love and mercy. It is who he is. God is love. God is, is according to his great mercy. And, you know, he doesn't name anything in us, not here or elsewhere. It's not some unforeseen faith that he sees or some unforeseen, you know, something that he sees that we're going to do or some character thing that he sees in us that he sits back and says, no, he doesn't name any of that stuff, stuff. We look at Paul, Paul's going to say it's not by works, not by anything that he sees us do, lest anyone should boast. All glory, praise, and honor belong to him. And so, what motivates God is his own character. Love and mercy overflow to sinners. And this word mercy, I mean, it's a mercy, it's a a word of condescension. It's a word of God reaching down. Bending down, coming for us, helping those who cannot help themselves, those who are unable to save themselves. He is a God of mercy. He lifts us out of our misery. He lifts us out of sin and he lifts us out of darkness and he lifts us out of brokenness and lostness and out of judgment and wrath. And it is his mercy. So Ephesians 2, it's there in your bulletin under the second point. Paul in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says a similar thing. He says, God who is rich in mercy. This is who God is. This is what God is like. This is why God does what he does. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation and all of his great and saving work and the hope that we have in Christ. It is our God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. In other words, even when we were in sin and in rebellion and spiritually dead because it separated from him, alienated from him. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, it says he made us alive. Again, he stoops down, he reaches down to where we are and makes us alive with Christ. He causes us to be born again, is how Peter puts it, right? According to his great mercy, he causes us to be born again. He makes us alive with Christ. We who were dead made alive 
See, to be born again is to be made spiritually alive. I mean, there are two pictures. One is raising from the dead. Another one is to be born all over again, to start all over again. And in that sense, spiritually raised from the dead. Through the resurrection of Christ, He gives us new life. And it's the almighty power of God that does it. You've got to picture Lazarus in his tomb to understand what he's saying here when it says he caused us to be born again or he made us alive with Christ, that almighty power of God. When Jesus stands outside the tomb of Lazarus, it's that story, he's, he's been in there four days and the, the text is a little, I, I guess just out there, you know, a little graphic saying, well, he's been in there, the stone has been rolled over, it's been four days, he's, it's, he smells. Like decay has set in, it's, it's bad. You don't want to open that door. And Jesus calls to him, Jesus calls to him to come out. But he doesn't just call, does he? He makes him alive. Because Lazarus wasn't going to do anything. Dead men don't walk. He wasn't going to do anything. God calls him, but he doesn't just call him. He makes him alive. He causes him, in a sense, to be born again, to be made alive again. He makes us alive with the power of Christ, and he gives life. And when he gives this life, he brings us, this, this new life that he gives us, brings us into a living hope. That is, into an indestructible and eternal inheritance. Right? The new life that he gives us, it's not this short-lived little thing. It's not something you can have for a little while, you're going to lose it or take it away. It's not something that exists just for this life. Hope that was worth it. You know, it's this thing. No, when he says, when he brings us, he causes us to live, and he gives us a, an undying life in promises that exist for as long as he does into an eternal, eternal inheritance. And now what, when he says this, we're born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven. So when we think inheritance, you think whether it's in the day of Jesus or in our day, they're pretty similar. When I think of inheritance, we inherit from our family, uh, from those who go before us, you know, the house maybe, and the land that it sits on, you know, whatever whatever money that they have, gold, silver, whatever resources they have, their worldly possessions that gets divided up. Um, you know, we're already start talking about that with our kids. You know, what, what, what do you want? You know, we'll start putting, you're putting your name on it, you know. I'm not, I'm not thinking about kicking anytime soon. I'm just saying, you know, but you do got a plan for these things. You know, there is, you know, and I want them bickering when I'm gone. I'm, you know, just make it. So there's this inheritance. This is the stuff, worldly possessions, but... What an indestructible. See, those things, we know, those things don't last. We live in a world where these things will pass away. One way or another, time will take its toll. And he says there's an indestructible, eternal inheritance. And so we wonder, what, what is it? We, in some ways, I want to say we don't know. In some ways, we do know. It's God in some ways, the inheritance that God gives us, the great gift of Scripture is that God gives us himself. He gives himself to us as Father, eternally. And so in one sense, the inheritance is we get to be with him forever. You know, but there is a whole wealth around that that I, that I don't, in some ways, I don't know. There, there's a mystery, a wonder to it. Let me just give you a few passages that touch it and, and give hints toward it. In your bulletin, number three, Matthew 25, he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. In some way, that's the inheritance I'm looking for. All I need to hear is Jesus to say that to me, and I'm good. But he says this to, to his people, and then he says, You have been faithful over little, and I will set you over much. 
enter into the joy of your master. And so I don't, I don't know what the much is that he's going to set us over. All I know is it's much and that it's more, more than we had. Whatever we had here, however much he's put you in charge of here, it's little. There's going to be more, and it's going to be much more in the context of it, which makes it all <laughs> to enter into the joy of your father, which is an inheritance of unmeasured wealth. First Corinthians 2.9, there in your bulletin, he says, What I no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of man has even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, he says, you have no idea. You know, set your imagination on fire and think about it, and no imagination has grasped, really, what you will experience in an eternity with the revelation of God as he really is. And you made like Christ, because we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. And in eternity where there is, or take Ephesians 2, verses 6 and 7, there in your bulletin, it says he, will, he has raised us up when we trusted in Christ, and he sanctified us at one time that we are in him. And it says at that moment, we, he raised us up and he seated us with him, with Christ, in the heavenly places. So that, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. Just think about that for a moment. In the ages, that's what he says, the light and momentary troubles. Whatever it is, even if it's when he's taking us home, whatever it is, he says it's light and moment. Life is short, eternity is long. And it says in the long coming ages of eternity, he will be showing us and unpacking for us and for our pleasure and experience with him the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness that is towards us in Christ. I don't even know what that means and it excites me. There's something there. Earthly inheritances perish, they decay, they fade, moths and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal, fluctuating markets consume. But what I want us to see in this text is that double keeping that God promises his people. Right? There's a double keeping in this passage. It says here that the inheritance will be kept for us, that inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. The inheritance is kept for you, and you, my friends, are kept for it. Right? He goes on to say, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith until it's revealed. It's being kept for you, and you are being kept for this. It's a match made in heaven, and he says the day will come when those two will be married, when those two will come together. The, The double keeping of God in this passage It is the unique aspect of this inheritance. It's eternal nature. It doesn't fade, perish, or or spoil. It doesn't go away. You cannot lose it. It is eternal. And and one of the ways Jesus talks about it, he sums it up. He says, I promise you eternal life. And life there is a big, full word. When it's this life, eternal life, life of the ages, life with God. Life is God is your Father, without sin, without sorrow, without pain. That's so much more in summary. Life as it was meant to be with God. 
It's imperishable. It's deathless. It can't be destroyed. It never ends. It's undefiled. It's pure. It's without decay. It doesn't change. It's unfading. It's undimmed in its glory and its beauty and its wonder. And it's kept for you. It's ready, he says, at the very end of the passage there. The last thing he says, it's ready to be revealed. It just it stands waiting. It's a done deal. It's yours. You were born, caused you to be born again into this living hope. And it's being kept for you, and you are being guarded for it. Look at what he says, what guards us. Who by God's power are being guarded? God himself guards his people. It is his power that protects, preserves, keeps safe. Whatever God guards. Do you understand? When you need something guarded, I have something really important and I want it guarded. Do you understand when when you need something guarded, guarded, if God is the guard, It's safe, that it's good. There, there, there is no greater power in the universe. And God says He has pledged Himself to guard His people, to keep us, to preserve us, so that we will enjoy what He has promised and what He has purchased with blood. what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 10. It's there in your bulletin under this second point, or third point, third point. John 10, Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Because God makes them alive. It causes them to be born again. And when I call, like Lazarus, he makes alive. And they answer, and they come. So they follow me, and he says, And I give them an eternal life. I gave it to them. It's theirs. For the keeping for the enjoyment. They will never perish. It's a life that it's it's indestructible, it's imperishable, undefiled, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And this is, and we did this when we did John a couple years ago, and he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand, and my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, what I just say, no, no power greater than the Father. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And so we said we're in the double grip of grace. Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand and my Father who's greater than than everyone. And no one can snatch them out of his hand. In other words, they are guarded by God. He is on duty, so to speak. He has loved his people and he has saved his people and he has adopted us as his children. And I don't know about you, but I am pretty protective of my children. Especially when they were young, but still I would give my life in a moment's notice for my children. Right, there is, there is, and he says, I have adopted you as his beloved, you know, what manner of love is this that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. And so God stands guard. And so Jude 1.24, let me just hit this. It's one of the benedictions I've used in recent months. One of those verses I... I Love to stand in and stand on. It says, now to Him, to God the Father, who is able to keep you. It's the word there, 
Greek phylax, to, to guard you, to stay in guard on you. He's able to keep you, to guard you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before his presence, the presence of his glory with great joy. Right? And the word he, now to him who is able, able doesn't catch it. That's the Greek word dunamai. Um, it's the word for dynamite. It's a word of power. It says that now that the one who has the power to guard you and to keep you so that you will not stumble and he will present you, he's able to do this to present you faultless before the presence of his glory on that day. So let me give us a few take-homes. What kind of people ought we ought to be? What kind of people ought we to be? What kind of people ought we to be? If these are the people that we are, if we are God's, if, if, if we are these folks who are guarded by the power of God for a day that is coming when it will be revealed as sure as the sun comes up every day, what kind of people ought we to be? We ought to be a secure people. We ought to know that our hope is not in our ability to guard ourselves that is in my ability to keep myself, I would despair if I thought it was entirely up to me to make sure this thing comes off right. But our hope isn't in ourselves and our ability to guard ourselves. The one who foreknew his people and chose them before the foundations of the world who caused them to be born again into a living hope, it is this one in who we have placed our trust, who guards us. We are a secure people. We should stand firm. Romans 8, everybody loves who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Can tribulation or distress or persecution, this church was being persecuted and and some of the persecution that they experienced was of a very severe nature. Persecution, famine, nakedness, if the stock market drops, I lose my job, there are financial problems and food is scarce and nakedness, clothes is scarce, or if there's danger or sword. He says, no, all these things, none of the, nothing that happens in your life, nothing that can come your way, not the crash of the stock market, not the, not the fall of our government, not an invasion by China. I worry about that sometimes. He goes on to say, no, all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. He caused us to be born again into a living hope and inheritance. It can't perish, it can't spoil, it doesn't fade, it doesn't go away. And so he says, there's nothing, nothing that is present, nothing that will come, nothing that can come into your life. It's nothing in your life now, so whatever you're struggling with, he's got you. And nothing to come that in the future, he's got you. You don't know what's coming, he knows what's coming, he's got you covered. He's got you guarded, he's got you... No height, no depth, nor anything else in all of creation, he says, can separate us from that love. This should make us a free people. Because some of these passages are ones I would normally preach at a funeral. You know, that they remind us of the great and precious promises. You know, of what it is that when we do pass from this life, we enter into. And those are the things we celebrate. When we celebrate the passing of one of God, precious in the, in the eyes of God is the death of his saints because they pass into this inheritance. You know, but it is also something that is for us. In other words, we don't have to wait to the end to celebrate these promises. These promises are meant to set us free. I have an inheritance, the weight of which 
can't even calculate. The imagination can't really grasp. And he says, this is to set us free. We can be a generous people. We can be a risky people. We can be a sacrificing people. We can be a a giving people. We can be, you know, there's a freedom that comes in this idea that there is an eternity. We're not to store up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, but to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and to store up treasures in heaven where nothing decays. We're to be a people of his word as we study these things. I don't know about you, but all I do is I study these texts to to give them to you. You know, they feed me. You know, these are the things that we, we need to be a people of the word because faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. And so not just on a Sunday morning, definitely on a Sunday morning, but not just on a Sunday morning. We need to be a people of the word, not living by bread alone, but by every word that comes from his mouth because here is our hope. Here, do you want to be full of courage and want to be full of hope? Feast on his word. Let him speak it into your life. <clears throat> We're a people of a living hope. We live in a world where life is hard and then you die. And there is no hope. And you talk to people sometimes and they think about what comes next and they've got nothing. And so they make the most of what they got now, which isn't much. But you and I are bearers of a living hope and an inheritance that cannot perish. And so we... We ought to be bearers of light in the darkness. We ought to move toward people. We ought, to, we ought to speak forth this glorious gospel of hope. What he's going to do in the rest of this book then is also, we not only should be a, a secure people and a free people and a people of the word and a, a people of living hope and a world that needs hope, but also a holy people. And this is what he's going to wrestle through as he walks through this book saying, we are this sanctified people set apart for Christ and his kingdom. And he says, but that's when you get down to the nitty-gritty of family and marriage and work and government and culture and community and day by day, it's hard. We struggle to follow Christ. And that's what he's going to wrestle through the rest of the book. Let me close this one thought. The inheritance described here belongs to those who belong to Christ. The inheritance, this hope, this security, this freedom, this belongs to those who belong to Christ by faith. If you've not put your faith in Christ, if you've not trusted Him, if you've not bowed the knee to King Jesus and accepted that what He did, He did for you, and that He can save you wherever you are, and He will give you an inheritance that He will keep for you, and He will keep you for it. If you haven't trusted Christ, do not let the sun go down without giving your heart to Him, trusting Him by faith to be your Savior and your King. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank You this morning for Your Word that lives and is true. I pray that it would feed our faith, that You would ignite our hearts and our imagination, that what You have done for us and what You have given us, make us a secure people. Make us a free people. Make us a holy people. Make us a people in Christ. Father, we pray that you would have your way with us and that your word would live and we would not only learn these facts, but it would shape our minds and our lives and change us forever. In Jesus' name we ask and pray. Amen.